You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to All the Things. It's all working. This is exciting. (laughs) It's Saturday night. And we are here. That's right. Because we are here every Saturday night. And we are looking forward to taking people's questions on God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, all the things. All the things. That's where we get the name. And um, so we want to encourage you to go right into the chat box if you're catching us on the live stream. And uh, we'd also love to know where you're watching. And yeah. where are you uh, from? Shout out your place. Shout out your city, your cousins, all of them. <laughs> okay. Hey, I just heard. So I was watching something. Oh, I was watching um, a podcast. And the the guy being interviewed was black and he, he started to like shout out his friends. It's like, hey, Rob, Tony. <laughs> and the host was like, hey, you have, are you done? He was like, excuse me, black people like to give shout outs. I think it's true. Not a stereotype. Just a, you know, a truth behind every little. Is there any shout out you'd like to give today? You know, I'm going to go against the grain today. I'll go against the grain. The, the cultural stereotype. Yes. Blacks and shout outs. Shout out. But we do. We like to give shout outs. We like to recognize our family and friends. Okay. Yes. <laughs> because where you go, you bring all your family and friends with you. This is true. Even in spirit. That's a cultural <laughs> part of black culture, I think. Much more than white European, whatever I am. It's very individualistic, some would say. Yeah. Some would say not so much, but I think that also goes down to your own family values and, you know, things like that. Yeah. I'll give a shout out to Auntie Laura if you're watching. Hey. <laughs> there it is. Yes. <laughs> very good. And um, I, I guess we should introduce ourselves. I, I want to let people get to know you a little bit better. I'm Krista Bontrager and I am everywhere theology mom. But people are still getting to know you. I still don't have a dot com. You know, I was thinking if people think of a dot com for me, shout out dot com. I don't know. Like, I need a dot com. <laughs> I like kids. Um, what is it that you've done in the past? Why are you here? Come again. <laughs> what, 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 like, what is your ministry experience? Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, so went to a lovely school to... Biola, shout out to Biola. Okay, Tamara, yes. Um, let's see. So I went to Biola. Uh, I studied sociology and Bible because I went to Biola. Yeah. Um, from there I got into social work. Like, yeah, group homes and things like that. You just let me know if I'm going a little too slow. You just tell me, hey, yeah. this is straight to the fact. <laughs> um, I'm not really, you know, comfortable with the mic yet and. Still learning. Um, yes. Um, and that's basically what I've done. Like, all I've done. No, I've it's been. a little more than that. Let me help fill up. <laughs> yes, if, if she reads my resume, kind of went um, group homes and foster care youth and things like that to case management, program management with homeless families. I've really worked in the realm of homeless families since probably 2006. Okay. Before that, you were a children's pastor. During that time, During I was that time. a children's pastor, okay. yes. So and you have some ministry background mm-hmm. as well, like church culture background. Church culture. I did an internship with my church, and it was a two-year internship. And from there, I then went into the children's ministry slot. That Very was, good. Yeah, ended up coming open like right as a, at the right time. And also, you have missionary experience living overseas i do you've been to you lived in south africa i lived in south africa for a little over four years and aside from that i've done work in zambia and in haiti okay so i think it's good for people to know like yeah i'm the theologian you're kind of playing more of the i'm an ordinary person lay person on the show but also representing kind of i think it's good we're a good um partnership because you have different life experiences than i do different cultural background than me and that kind of helps to bring us together in the lord but then also looking at life from different points of view so definitely i agree i grew up in la um trying to think of yeah grew up in la grew up south central yeah south central um to a single mom and had three siblings um, and I think that in and of itself was really interesting. 
um, spent the later part of my teenage years over in the San Fernando Valley and had a good time there. Yeah. Pretty interesting life. But um, yeah, it's our, I think our paths are very different, but at the same time, very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully uh, you guys will continue to get to know Monique as we move along. I want to give everyone a quick rundown on today's show. Uh, we're talking about the question. We had this question a few weeks ago. Uh, does Jesus' death on the cross violate the Old Testament law against human sacrifice? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in just a few minutes. We had hoped to have a special guest on, but it didn't quite work yeah. out. So I'm going to go ahead and field the question to the best of my ability there. And also continuing the Easter theme, we're going to talk about the role of women in the resurrection. And then Monique's going to give me a pop quiz on some topic that I don't know about. I right have now. two questions. So it depends on how slow or fast okay. your answers are All right. that I'll be able to get both of them in because yes. All right. I'll look forward to that. And uh, join us in the live chat. Uh, my daughter is in there helping to monitor the chat. And so post your question on God, the Bible, or All the life. things. All the yeah, things. Anything. So anything. we will try to um tackle some of those things so first up i wanted to talk about a question um a few weeks ago we had a great question from a muslim viewer our friend juad who asked us about why the center of christianity is founded on human sacrifice which is namely the death of jesus so did some research on this question i took a couple weeks to think about it yeah. and because i have to tell you juan it's a very thoughtful question uh, it's not one that i've really thought about before and um i'm sure that coming at things from the perspective of a muslim you're going to have different questions than you have if you're someone like me who's pretty much grown up in the church their whole life. So this question is just sort of new for me. And so I wanted to take some time to think about it. And I tried to get a special guest on, but I don't want to make you wait any longer. So we're just going to go ahead and try to tackle it to the best of our ability. And um, so I looked up some scripture references related to this question. And there are many Old Testament passages that prohibit God's people from sacrificing their children to the gods. In fact, I, I picked out one of those verses. I think Bob's going to pull it up here from Deuteronomy 12, 31. And we're going to read that together. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, meaning the way of the people and the land that surround the Israelites, because, worship, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fires as sacrifices to their gods. To their gods. Okay, so this is one of several verses along these lines. I just picked one. But what's interesting to me about all of the verses related to sacrificing is that they're specifically about children. That was God's specific concern was to protect the innocent. And so the innocent children wouldn't be sacrificed. And we actually know from archeology span that the practice of child sacrifice was pretty widespread in the ancient world at that time. It was not uncommon for uh, people to sacrifice even infants to the god Moloch. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if any, we have any uh, fiction fans out there, but there's a book, there's a series of books that I like. Um, by an author named Lynn Austin. It's called, I think the name of the series is called Gods and Kings. But it's a really cool fiction series, well, sort of like historical fiction, where it takes the biblical characters of Hezekiah and other kings in the Judean kingdom, and then it puts them in their historical setting, and then she incorporates insights from archaeology into that. It's a really fascinating book series. Anyways, the opening scene in this series is when one of um, the kings offers a child to Moloch. So here's this Jewish king who should be worshiping the one true God, and he sacrifices his own son to the god Moloch, and they would burn the child alive in a human sacrifice. It was a horrible, horrible, yeah, horrible, yeah, horrible, horrible practice. Um, 
But it's pretty well known from history that this practice did go on and that, that Jews just in some regard did practice child sacrifice. And this is one of the reason that God eventually brought judgment against them and why they went into exile, because one of his laws was to protect children from this practice. So Juad is absolutely right that God does prohibit um, human sacrifice, but I would just nuance that a little bit to say that the text is specifically, um, the, the laws are specifically geared to protect children in particular because that was the practice it was the worship practice to per, to um, sacrifice children specifically infants what well, was a kind of a hard thing to talk about but um, definitely a reality so then in the new testament what we see is jesus comes along and his death on the cross christians would say is what saves us and so juat's question is isn't that a form of human sacrifice and I think um, the answer to that is actually no, it's not. Because there are many verses in the Gospels, and Juwad, I would invite you to, to read the Gospels for yourself so you can see that I'm not slanting this in a certain kind of a way, where Jesus repeatedly talks about laying down his life. Mm. And I would say that it's not a human sacrifice, it's a self-sacrifice. It's, it's not um, dissimilar to soldiers giving themselves as a sacrifice in a war situation. Um, they voluntarily lay down their lives for other people. And that is not morally the same as a child sacrifice, as a human sacrifice. So there's many, I'm just going to put up a couple of verses on the screen here so we can see this. John 15:13 says, this we're gonna greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends and then mark 10 45 says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and um another one that i don't have on screen but is a good one there's a series of verses in john chapter 10 talk about Jesus being the good shepherd and it says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So I would say the motif of Jesus's sacrifice is that of self-sacrifice, not human sacrifice or child sacrifice. So I would say that the answer to whether or not Jesus death was a human sacrifice is actually no, it was not. It was he laid it down voluntarily, which is qualitatively different than child be being burned alive against its will. Yes. Those are two very different ideas. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So the thought of God, Father God sending his son to be sacrificed is like an error. Is, is that what you're saying? So that's a good question. And I'm still kind of thinking that part of it through. And like I said, this is a new question for me. And that was one of the things that I had hoped to talk to our guest about because he, as a former Muslim, would be coming at the whole question. Because that's probably going to be Juad's next natural question is, how do we think about this idea of God having a son? Mm -hmm. That's often very confusing for Muslims. And just to be like totally honest, and maybe we can have someone on in the future to, to address this, is I'm not really sure how to answer that yet because I don't interact with a lot of Muslims and so I haven't had to tackle that question but I would say this um yes Jesus in Christianity is the son of God but I think the important point that I'm trying to make is that he voluntarily laid down his life so even though the relationship is the same a father and a son and Jesus is a son and that somewhat is analogous to the Old Testament where we're talking about children, the difference is his will and that he voluntarily lays down his life. So I don't know that if that kind of helps to address that question. Yeah. yeah. So um, another aspect that I think is really important is the self-sacrifice on the cross in Hebrews uh, chapter seven. Um, it talks about Jesus laying down his life for the sins of the people and that he sacrificed 
for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Mm-hmm. And so it was no, um, it wasn't a merely human person on the cross. Jesus is both human and divine. And so it's because he's divine that he's able to stand in our place as sinners. Mm-hmm. And that's why his death has application for us. So it's a very good question and, and very thoughtful. And, and we really appreciate um, the question. So hopefully we help to deal with that a little bit. Um, so yeah, hopefully that helps. Yeah, helpful for me. I learned something new. Oh, good. Thanks for doing that research and yeah. getting into that. I think in light of having um, our special guests on, it was helpful to hear, you know, an answer or to hear, you know, what does, what is the difference in self-sacrifice or, you know, was Jesus actually a human sacrifice or, yeah. you know, what does that look like? So. And I think it's a good time of the year because today is Easter Saturday. This mm-hmm. is the day when symbolically Jesus is in the grave. And for the disciples, they would have felt like all hope is lost. Mm-hmm. They had seen him uh, die a vicious and cruel death on the cross. And the cross was an, an ancient Roman uh, device of torture. It's um, it was an execution, yes, and uh, public execution, and so Easter Saturday is what we're in today. This is a day when we remember Jesus being in the tomb, that he is dead. He is shrouded and covered in the grave clothes, and then tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and celebrate Easter or read the resurrection. And the resurrection is really the central holiday for Christianity. We all love Christmas. Christmas is fun. A lot of presents. But really the central holiday is that of Easter or the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Because without the resurrection, we don't have Christianity. So this is really the most important holiday on the Christian calendar is, is the resurrection. So looking forward to that tomorrow. So I want to encourage everyone who's watching right now to jump on our chat box and interact with us. And um, we look forward to hopefully get some questions here. Um, So, all right. So you ready to play Stump the Scholar? I have three questions. All right. Okay. So the first question goes back to Resurrection Sunday. so everybody says Jesus was in the tomb. How many days? Three days. Typically. Three days. Yeah. Okay. How do I count this? Yes. Because I'm like, well, if he died on Friday yeah. and then he was in the tomb on Saturday, but then he came out on Sunday, I gave him a good 24 hours at best. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I don't understand. Can you bring some light to this yes. for me? So I'll try. Okay. Um, so I have a friend who, if you really want to ask this question and break it down into all the details, we should have him on the show because he is so good at breaking this stuff down and he would be able to give us the hour by hour timeline of Jesus's uh, death and and burial and resurrection. Are we looking at a full 36 hours? Yeah. So here's how it kind of generally breaks down is that Jesus dies at about 3 p.m. on Friday. Mm Mm-hmm. And before the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. So technically, he's he's dying on Friday before the Sabbath, before the sun goes down. Because in the Jewish calendar, time is rendered from sunset on one day until sunset on another day. So we're going to call that 6 p.m. Okay. So he dies at 3 p.m. on one day. Mm-hmm. Then the sun goes down. It's Sabbath. He's in the tomb. So they're quickly trying to bury him before the Sabbath begins. That much is very clear from the text. They were trying to quickly get him off the cross and into the tomb before the Sabbath began. So that's day one, even though it's only maybe an hour or two. That would qualify as day one because he was buried on that day before the Sabbath. So 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday. He probably was buried maybe at 5 p.m. on Friday. Okay. And then the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. Then it's Sabbath. Okay. And then 
it, he's in the tomb all that day, which is right now. That's where we are. And then the sun goes down at 6 p.m. on Saturday. So Friday to Saturday is yeah, one day. It's, uh-huh. it's, no, that's the second day. I'm so confused. So, okay. So he's, he dies at 3 p.m. on we, Friday. Are we talking about 24-hour cycles? Yes, but it's not the way that it doesn't start at midnight the way that ours does. Yes. So, it, But it would start at 6 p.m. I'm going to let you on, finish. On our time. Yeah. Okay, you go ahead. So he dies at 3 p.m. Okay, that's day one is th- from 3 p.m. to 5.59. Is day one. Is day one. So day two starts at 6, 6 p.m. Okay. So now he's on day two. So we're on day two right now. We're in day two. And now 6 p.m. on day two or go to day three. Then Saturday night at 6 p.m. starts day three. So when we get to the tomb on Sunday morning, that's day three. That's the morning of day three. Are you, are you with me? Yeah, I'm like, you know. But this is, remember, this is Jewish time. Yes. So we got to be careful not to conflate our yes. version of time and our calendaring. Yes. And we have to understand the Bible was written by Jewish writers. So we're rendering it according to Jewish time. Okay. So he dies at 3 p.m. And I'm using 3 p.m. as our convention to try to explain it through our time scale. Mm-hmm. But he dies on day one. But it's at the very waning moments yes. of day one. They put him in the tomb. So that day one, it only constitutes... 17 minutes. Possibly, yes. 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 And then they go to day two, he's in the tomb, and then... For a typical 24-hour For a typical day. 20, from sunset to sunset. Mm-hmm. And then day three starts at that sunset, and it goes into the night, and then into May the morning. Three. Day three. Okay. Day three. So the women show up probably around 6 a.m., on sunday so it would have been the first day of the week and so the sabbath is over so they can go to the tomb this would have been their first opportunity to help take care of the body Mm -hmm. so that's how you render it as three days but it is very confusing to those of us who are what in the west and we're not familiar with how the ancient jews would mark mark time okay so okay Thanks. Hopefully. That I was like, you know, technically Jesus only been in there 45 minutes, yeah. <laughs> but we got him up already. I'm not, please help me understand. Okay. But yes, that makes a lot of sense when you look at the Jewish pattern of time. Yeah. And yes. Okay. I did not consider that. So what's your, what's your second question? Second question is what's going on with the Easter bunny? Like <laughs> I don't have kids, but can they celebrate the Easter bunny? Like, and not celebrate him, but should we dye eggs? Is it like pagan tradition mixed with Christianity? Is Jesus looking at me sideways? Go ahead. Because now I have my egg and my bunny uh-huh. and him and the cross right next to each other. I need to know. <laughs> Is he looking at you sideways? That's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> Don't act like Jesus won't look at you sideways. <laughs> That could be a whole other conversation. It is. I have many instances in, in scripture where I think Jesus looked at people sideways. <laughs> I think sideways might be like a cultural s- expression. Nope. Jesus got it. I'm sure he does. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me see if I That'll can. That'll be a whole other segment. Maybe yeah. next week. What does it mean to look at you sideways? So the Easter bunny. Yes. yes. About that. I have no idea. Um, so my fr- uh, I have an internet acquaintance, uh, Marsha Montenegro. I want to encourage people to go look up. She's got some good entries along these lines. She's a former um, astrologer and new age follower. And now she's a Christian apologist. And she has some entries about the question of is Easter, does it have pagan roots? Is it a pagan idea? Is it named after a pagan goddess? These kinds of questions. Her view is, and I'm just relying on her research because she's actually looked into this. This isn't something I've, mm-hmm. I've really looked into. But in her view, um, it's much ado about nothing. Um, Easter is not named after a Ishtar pagan. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. Uh-huh. That's it's that's that's just an urban legend. Um, and I don't remember off the top of my head what the 
origin of the the whole Easter Bunny thing is. But this is how I kind of think about it is if we want to talk technically about what holidays um, are the most important in the church, definitely is the resurrection. And that is the focus of our calendar. And I think that if we're clear about that um, and making it clear to our children what we're really celebrating, um, personally, I think this is an issue of Christian charity, but I personally don't see any big problem with having children hunt for eggs in your backyard. I think it's kind of fun. Um, if you're concerned about eggs being kind of a symbol of fertility, have them hunt for something else. I don't know, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fun tradition. We want to be very careful not to be so, uh, my friend Ken Samples, he's a, he's a theologian that I work with. Um, I think he's right to point out that sometimes Christians are a little too overzealous, about looking at the origin of something and that can sometimes fall into a form of the genetic fallacy and I think that the Easter traditions that we have in our country have kind of taken on a life of their own and they're just very lighthearted and and fun and I, I'm I think God's also like for fun and I, I, I am a little concerned about a world where we're just trying to strip all the fun mm-hmm. away from children like yeah. I, I, I'm a little cautious about that. So for me personally, again, I think it's an issue of Christian charity. If you don't want to let your kids look for Easter eggs because you're concerned that it's a fertility symbol, maybe they can look for something else. Maybe you can find some alternative, but just to make something fun, to make a tradition. Well, I don't um, have so, kids yet, but yeah. I was just wondering, like, when I do have kids, will, you know, yeah. can we still look for Easter eggs? And, sure. Why not? Yeah, I just don't know. Yeah, all those things. Um, oh, our friend Juwad is jumping in. I, I hope he... Yay. Um, we've been told by our... Thank you for the information. Okay, we've been told by our Muslim clerics that the Old Testament prophets and their followers reached salvation without getting someone to die for their sins. Um, I would need to know more about that, Juwad. And, and like I said earlier, I'm super glad you're asking the question. And yeah. I just don't have a ton of experience interacting with m- Muslims and what they believe. Um, I'm very conversant in what we believe as Christians, but I would have to find out. I would love to have coffee with you sometime and just ask more questions because I would love to find out more about what's behind that question. But um, I can say that the Old Testament prophets and their followers that God set up a system of sacrifices in the old covenant under Moses and that these sacrifices had to be performed with certain animals and under certain conditions at a certain location by certain priests and that those sacrifices um, did was the way of the means for people to have their sins forgiven. Um, and so someone did have to die. It just wasn't a human person. God selected an animal to die in their place. Um, it says in, in the New Testament that the penalty for sin is death. So someone has to die for our sins. In the Old Testament, God chose um, an animal to stand in our place and one would die. And then there was also this idea of a scapegoat where they would kind of put the priest would put their hand on the head of the goat and transfer all the sins of the people from that year onto the goat symbolically. And then they would release it into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And so those those two typologies are two kind of word pictures Um, that were lived out as the Jewish people is how the Jewish people got their sins forgiven. When we get to the New Testament, all of those things come together in the death of Jesus. He is the one, the scapegoat, 
that has transferred all the sins of the people onto him and he dies in our place so instead of a physical animal what dies is is essentially the the son of god so i would say that yes someone did have to die for the sins of the jews under the old covenant and the and the old covenant prophets it's just it wasn't a person jesus came sacrificing himself so that he could be the final sacrifice so we didn't have to keep going through these rituals with with sheep and dying for us or having a scapegoat um, if you read through the gospels you'll you'll find out more about the life of jesus and if you read through the book of hebrews in the new testament it explains the old testament sacrificial system and we as christians still believe in a sacrifice we still believe that our salvation comes from a very particular sacrifice through a very particular that must be performed by a very particular priest jesus is the great high priest he's the final priest and that it was his blood um is was the final blood that had to be spilled and now when he came back to life um through the resurrection he now is living in the temple of heaven it is the eternal temple so everything in the old testament that the prophets told us about in the old testament we call them like types or shadows of what was to be eventually fulfilled in jesus i really hope that helps you Juad, and, and my apologies um for trying to stumble my way through this and i, I would ask for grace mm-hmm. because um you know, I don't know what your clerics have told you, and I want to be extremely respectful of that. And just explaining from our perspective as Christians is helping to clarify what, what we believe um, about things. So, um, yeah, I'm super glad that you're yes. here. And we love, we appreciated your question. And I, and again, I ask for grace for our apologies for taking so long to answer it. Uh, like I said, at the top of the show is just a new question for me. So, all right. Since I didn't really have much to say about the Easter bunny. All right, go ahead. Hit me with a, with an, with another question there. Once saved, always saved. Oh, brother. Or that. Yeah, that's maybe we'll get the teenager over here to answer that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Once just... saved, always saved. So unpack that a little bit. So let's say, well, and I guess this question just kind of came to me i was thinking like what would be something that i would have wondered about you know in my early years of oh sorry thank you um in my early years of salvation and like as a teenager and things like that and um that question would come up for me a lot like if i mess up once okay there's probably grace but if i continue in this am i now did i lose my salvation can salvation be lost or um, if I confess Jesus and have my belief in him, am, am I guaranteed salvation no matter what? Just once saved, always saved, or once saved, still watch yourself. Watch yourself. Okay. So, and I would love it if my husband would jump in on this too, because um, he has some good thoughts at times. Um, I think that at times. it... No, I mean, because it's like, sorry. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> that just came out of me. Sorry. Uh, it was my No, it voice. just means like he usually tells me off the air. He has like some brilliant insight. And then I'm like, why didn't you say that? Yes. Well, I, don't, so, I don't think of it until then. So I don't. <laughs> so anyway, so I'll contribute if I All right. can here. So the question here is the nature of salvation. Once I am saved, then what is my relationship with sin how much sin you're really asking how much sin can i commit and before still before I, i'm not saved anymore you know. and i kind of have moved from the category of saved to unsaved and i think it's an interesting question because i'm not looking for the loopholes i'm just it wondering it kind of sounds like a loophole question but that's all right all right so let's <laughs> the teenager says it's a loophole question So here's a way of thinking about salvation that I have found helpful. Um, 
I think of salvation as kind of like a marriage relationship. That if I tell you I got married to my husband, it, there was a date and a time. Mm-hmm before which I was not married and after which I was married. And that we call it an anniversary is when I got married. And that changed my legal standing. I would say that something changed in the spirit realm for me. My soul became connected to my husband in both the natural and I think in the, in the spirit realm, in the supernatural. So something happened and took place before God and our friends and family on that day when we got married. Now, how much could we, what you're essentially asking is, how much can I break my marriage vows and still be married? And so do I make mistakes in my everyday life? Does my husband make mistakes? Absolutely. We make mistakes. We go to each other. We say we're sorry. We, what the Bible calls, we repent. Um, we try to change our ways. We try to live more closely as disciples of Jesus. We try to love each other in a self-sacrificial way. But that's a journey. That is not an instantaneous thing. Marriage is essentially two sinners who have made commitments to each other and God helping them, they're going to become more and more Christ-like if they're in a Christian marriage and they're going to serve Christ and become more like Christ through the life of their marriage. That doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. Um, I've made some big mistakes. My husband's made big mistakes and we've needed to forgive each other. But overall, um, we have a very loving and, and good and solid and, and healthy marriage. And we love each other deeply. And, and when we had said yes to each other, we've said no to everybody else. And that is the nature of our relationship. But Let's say that one of us abandoned the marriage. We just left. We moved out and maybe we even left all our stuff behind, but one of us just left and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And we abandoned the marriage. Would we still be married? Well, technically, probably for a while until we got a divorce certificate. Um, but we can make choices to stay in the marriage and work at it and work through our mistakes, or we can also make choices to leave the marriage completely and abandon the marriage. And then, and then the question is, is are we still married? Mm -hmm. That's really kind of what you're asking is if my heart turns away from God and I abandon the relationship, am I still connected to the father are we still a family are we still am i still part of the bride of christ and i think that the the framing of the question when people say well once save always save what is it yes or no it's like well we don't want to think of our relationship with the lord through a list of do's and don'ts mm -hmm. it's primarily a relationship first and so when we're asking the question, once saved, always saved, to me, that's usually a sign that the person is not relating to God as a relationship. It's usually a sign that they're relating to God in a very legalistic do's and don'ts kind of a way. And if I'm really in a relationship with Jesus as my Savior, and I'm in a relationship with the Father, I'm not going to want to just willy-nilly abandon that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to know that in my heart, I want to become more like Jesus. I want to submit my will to the Father. I want to go into his presence and worship him. And, and I don't do these things to check them off of a list of I'm a good Christian now. I do this because I'm in a relationship. 
just as I'm in a relationship with my husband. I want to do nice things for him. I want to try to remember his birthday. I want to, which I'm not very good at, but I, I, I want to try to do good things that bolster the relationship. But when I fall down, I'm always so grateful for my husband to say, there's grace for that. Let's work together. Let's help each other and vice versa. So I don't know, Bob, do you have any thoughts to add? Okay, here's All right, uh, let's see here. Yeah, I guess um, I would yeah, agree with what you said. Um, but the, our, when we believe, uh, we let that belief change us, change our heart. And so if there's growth in our Christian life, then that's a, a, a good sign that we want to see. But it's not, uh, we don't uh, uh, become religious about it as far as I have to make sure I do certain things. But we let um, that uh, uh, belief in what God has done, you know, change us, uh, change our hearts so that we want to do more and more oh, things that okay. please God. And uh, we don't please God have a, a way to obtain salvation, to obtain God's favor, because we already have his favor um, because of salvation. Um, but we want to do good works out of gratitude. So that's kind of one thing. So can you lose your salvation? Um, you know, that's that's a really deep. I, don't, I haven't quite settled that in my mind yet, yeah. for sure. But um, I would you know. say, I think my, my big answer to that would be only God knows the answer to that question. Hmm. That it's up to him to judge. That's not for me to judge, ultimately, whether someone has lost their salvation or not. But I just try to help people orient their heart more toward the Father. Just, and just like what Bob was saying is, is it's really a heart check question. And if you're relating to God in a legalistic way of like, hey, I've done more good than bad or more right than wrongs or I've done these things or what's the bare minimum I need to do or what's the things that I, I for sure can't do or I'm going to be in hell. That's just the, not the right paradigm to be thinking about it with. It's a relationship, and just as you wouldn't want to damage our friendship by doing something purposeful and hurtful to us, we, we, we have to remember that Jesus calls us friends. Mm -hmm. He says, no longer do I call you servants, now I call you friends. And as Jesus' friend, I want to do things that honor and respect the relationship. And so that's, to me, how we want to be thinking about it first. I don't know if that... Answer necessarily settles it but our friend juad is following up with some more questions which i love and he says uh i'm sorry for asking so many questions please accept my infinite respect hey brother it's okay uh monique and i have ha we love to yes. um, ask questions too so so glad you're here yeah and we love your you love your so questions glad. so you asked a very thoughtful question. Um, thank you so much for the clarification. As far as I know, Daniel and his father followers reached salvation without animal sacrifice. There was no temple at that time. Awesome follow-up question. Juad, I'm wondering, like, have you read have you read the Bible? Because your questions are fantastic. And I want to encourage you that if you haven't yet read the Bible to um get a hold of one. And if you don't have one, um, you know, and if you don't know a Christian person, I'm sure that uh, Monique and I can help you get a Bible. That's beca true. Because, yep. you know, that's that's really the way to, to know um, these matters for yourself. Uh, we're happy to talk about it, but, you know, we don't want to have you rely necessarily on what we say. We want to send you right to the source. But what you're describing about Daniel is absolutely correct. So here's what happens. Uh, since we were talking about child sacrifice earlier, and I'm sorry for being just a little weepy, you can probably catch a little few tears on camera because I'm just like so so touched by the questions because they're just so good. I, I love talking to people when they're hungry and wanting to know things. So anyways, we were talking earlier about child sacrifice, and this was one of the great sins of Israel. And we have utmost respect for Jews and our Jewish friends and don't want to um, belittle them in any way because every nation has its sins that, yep. th that, that they struggle with. Um, but in ancient times, what happened is that the Israelites strayed from worshiping the one true God. And one of the practices that they engaged in that, that God had to put a stop to was them sacrificing their children to Moloch and other false gods. 
And so what happens is that Jesus uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring judgment on his own people. It's a very sad time in Israel's history, but he had to teach them a lesson. And so the Assyrians come in and they, they run over and take over um, the 10 tribes in the north. Uh, that's called mm-hmm. Israel. And those people are scattered and dispersed. And the practice of the ancient Assyrians was to force people to intermarry. And so those Jews were carried from, away from their land and probably forced to intermarry with foreigners to pollute the bloodlines, not only that, but also to pollute their religion. And so if you want to break up a religion in one or two generations, just have forcible intermarriage and, you know, people lose their culture, they lose their traditions, and then pretty soon they lose their religious beliefs. So the Samaritans in the New Testament come from those people who were interbred forcibly between Jews and, and by the Assyrians. So that's what happens there. In the southern kingdom, the the two tribes that are left in the south, and that included the tribe of Judah, which uh, was around Jerusalem, um, what happens is that uh, the Babylonians come and overrun them, and they take them away from the land into Babylon. And Babylon is like modern-day Iraq, I believe. And so... They carried them away for 70 years. And this is sort of like God putting them in a really long time out. It's like when you have a kid and they're just not getting the picture. You've given them several verbal warnings and they're like, okay, now I'm plucking you out of this situation. You're going to sit over Mm -hmm. here and you're going to have time out. And that's a a way of thinking about what happened with the Jews is they went to time out for 70 years and then God restored wow. them to the land. He, he let them go back home and reestablish the temple. So what Jewad is talking about here is what happened in those 70 years when people were away from the land, they didn't have access to the temple. The Babylonians had destroyed the temple. They had taken away all of the sacred um, things in the temple so there was, and, and they had put to death many of the priests. And so there was no way for them to have sacrifices or priests or a temple. So how were these people saved? And that's a very thoughtful question. Well, Juad, here's what I would say is that we see in the book of Daniel and in the book of Esther, these are two kind of vignettes of what happened when the people went to Babylon and their struggle to maintain their religion. Um, you're absolutely right that they didn't have the temple system. They didn't have the priests. They didn't have the sacrifices. So what they did was they, that was when the synagogue system started is that they would focus on prayer and scripture reading. And um, it wasn't until the Jews went back to Jerusalem after 70 years that they were able to reinstate and rebuild the temple. And that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah mm-hmm. is that he's rebuilding the walls in the book of Ezra is he's rebuilding the temple. And so what's really important for us to understand is that God is a God of grace. That even though they didn't have a temple when they were in Babylon, he didn't abandon his people. Even when Haman in the book of Esther tries to commit um, genocide and wipe out all of the Jews there in Babylon, God doesn't abandon his people. He saves a righteous remnant. So God is not so legalistic that if you don't have a sacrifice, you cannot be saved. And so that is God's grace to the Jewish people at that time to preserve a remnant of people, even when they're away from their land, even when they don't have a temple sacrifice, sacrificial system. So it's not God's ideal. It's not his prescription. Immediately, the first thing they do when they return to the land is rebuild the temple. But while they're away from the land, God still preserves them. He extends grace. And you're right. He extends salvation to them while they're in the land. But those Jews who did not return to the land, because not everybody went back to the land Mm -hmm. after 70 years, some of them stayed in Babylon some of them moved away from Babylon to other parts of the Middle East. And um, those people practiced their worship in the synagogue. 
and they would engage in prayer and, and scripture reading in the public square, but they didn't have sacrifices. What we see by the New Testament times is there were certain times a year when Jews would go to Jerusalem to have sacrifices. Mm -hmm. So if they lived far away, they would engage in a pilgrimage sometimes to come to Jerusalem to participate in the sacrifices, especially on Passover, which is the time of year when Jesus also died, was during Passover. So I hope that helps to explain that a little bit, Juad, from, a, from both a Jewish and a, and a Christian point of view. So I'm just blown away. There's so much that I'm learning. I just, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yes. Hopefully everybody's learning. So yes. it's good. Good overview of, of the Old Testament. Well, let's round it out. We're, we've just got a few minutes left on the broadcast. Um, so did you have one more question for me? I don't. I, want, I almost want to say you could ask me a question, okay. but it makes me a little nervous. And so then I'm like, ah, let's see, there's 66 books, um, 39 in the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, okay. Maybe I, uh, yeah, there's. Okay. All right. Genesis well, how about this? Okay. Since it's Easter, okay. let's talk about the women. Okay. We talked yes. about that earlier. Yes. Um, the women at the tomb. Tomorrow is Easter Sunday. And that is the day that we remember the women coming to the tomb. Yes. And I personally think that it was great that he told women because I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. I was like, okay, well, women, we, I, I won't clump all of us together, but I like a good tea conversation to sit and talk with my friends. <laughs> what better vehicle to get the word out than a woman? Okay. Can you imagine? And not saying that men wouldn't have told the story, but you know, I kind of see it like, oh, what was I supposed to tell? I was supposed to tell you something. <laughs> That's kind of how I see it if you would have told the men. Like, oh, yeah, oh, you know, I saw Jesus the other day. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about this. So the women go to the tomb, they bury Jesus um, late on Friday. Friday. Yeah. So then the women come in after 17 minutes. We established. Yeah. So then he's in the tomb and then it's Sunday morning and the sun is coming up and it's the first opportunity they've had to get to the tomb. They're going to go through some rituals to help preserve the body. Mm -hmm. And so they get there and this huge rock that was rolled in front of the tomb is, is rolled away. And they're thinking, wow, what's happened here? And they go in the tomb and they're greeted with angels, both um, outside and inside the tomb. And they say, why? In fact, I think I have the scripture here. Bob, do you want to uh, put yeah. it up there for us? There All right. On the first day of the week, which was what we call Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb and they found the, stole, the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, just as he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. But then they remembered his words. It's like, aha, it finally clicked for them. Then they came back from the tomb and they told all these things, all the things. Hey, it's a biblical thing. All these things to the 11 and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, notice their reaction here, verse 11. But they did not believe the women. See. Because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over the strips of linen, seeing the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away, wondering to himself what had happened. I think the account of the women is so powerful, and but it because... Jesus chooses to make the women the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they're the ones who are coming. Uh, I don't know. The men were hiding somewhere. <laughs> they weren't coming to the tomb. But it was the women who come to the tomb to prepare the body. And um, 
the men think this sounds like nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, the women are recalling the words of Jesus. Uh, they're recalling that he predicted that he would have to rise again um, after his death. But the men says this is nonsense because we all know dead men don't rise. Mm-hmm. Dead men don't come back to life. What are you talking about? Now, in the ancient world, in the court of law, a woman's testimony would not usually be regarded as having the same worth or truthfulness as a man's testimony. A woman's testimony was looked upon as being suspicious because women were thought of being a little too emotional, a little too crazy. And so I think it's so interesting that the most important historical event in in human history jesus picks women to be the proclaimers yes i'm so moved by jesus value of women and their dignity and making them to be the proclaimers to the apostles because the word apostle someone who proclaims Mm -hmm. and here we have almost like the apostles to the apostles they were proclaiming the the resurrection of jesus to the people who should have been in the know the the men were the ones who had been in the rabbi school of jesus for three years if there was anyone on the planet who should have known that jesus would rise again it it was it should have been them but they didn't know and it was the women who come to be the proclaimers. I am so moved by the testimony of the women. I love, this is like one of my favorite passages in, in scripture in um, Luke 24. So anyways, those are my thoughts about that. Do you have any thoughts? Um, I just think that it shows how fierce we are personally, but um, that could just be my own, you know, my own take on it. Um, yeah, I do wonder what the men were doing. Why weren't they there? Um, and also loving the fact that the women had it, like, while there was this, I guess, emotional component, women were seen as, you know, as being super emotional, there was also this nurturing component to go and want to take care of this body. Mm. And so I think it shows our nurturing capacity, but also this boldness that lives within women to be able to go and speak to the proclaimers and say, Mm -hmm. no, but do you know this is really what's happened? And to stand their ground, because I imagine that it could have been a little intimidating to go and proclaim to the proclaimers, those who had, you know, been with Jesus for so long and might be calling you crazy and, you know. This is nonsense. Yeah, what are you speaking? And to stand and say, no, this is what I'm sure of. Very good. I love that because I think that our tendency is to... um, try to figure out like who was in charge who had the loudest voice but jesus comes to the women gives them this very important message but he doesn't leave the men so far behind and then he appears to them Mm -hmm. uh later in the day and when we get the more complete picture when we look at all four gospels jesus deals so graciously with each and every one of them to let them know the good news and i want to encourage anyone who's watching this today that the good news of Christianity is that the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means that he holds the keys to death and that we don't have anything to fear. If we trust in him as our savior, we too will rise. And so when Christians worship on Sunday, We're giving a mini nod every Sunday to the resurrection. That's why Christians worship on Sundays. It's because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. And it reminds us that we too will rise. The the heart of the Christian religion is the resurrection. It is a historical event. And if the resurrection happened, we would say that it changes everything that there is this is the most important story in human history not because jesus was just a nice man 
not simply because he was a prophet, although he was that. Christians are making the additional claim that he broke the hold over sin, death, and the devil, and that in him we too will rise again. We don't believe in heaven as a wish upon a star kind of mm-hmm. a thing. We believe in heaven because Jesus rose from the dead as a real historical event. And that is the message of the resurrection. And it was the women that Jesus chose first to give that message to and make them the proclaimers. It's very powerful. Yes. As a woman. Yeah. I find such encouragement in that. I so um, I want to thank everyone for watching. Those of you who are catching us on the podcast, on the replay, we want to thank you for your engagement. And I mean, uh, shoot us a note. Let us know how you're enjoying the show and the conversation. Connect with me on social media. Uh, I'm everywhere as Theology Mom. And you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Just search for Theology Mom and it'll pop right up. And be sure to hit the subscribe key. And be sure to share the program with others. Help us get the word out about this. We're really um, wanting to be a service to the body of Christ. And if you know homeschoolers, if you know young people that have questions about the Bible, we would welcome their questions. If you have sincere seekers that want to engage with thoughtful Christians, we want to do that. Uh, If you want our perspectives on the news of the day and giving our thoughts about what's happening, um, we would love to hear that. We just want to know like who's out there and what, yeah, what they're and wanting to hear. That's the real heart behind it is, you know, like talking about, yes, Jesus and God and Bible, but also, or not even, but, and also all of the things that we may be afraid to talk about inside of the walls of the church. Yeah. That's what know? we're here to do. So, and we want to thank everyone for catching the show and thanks to my husband and my daughter for helping us out every week. And we love you guys, and we know unequivocally that we just want to know that we have questions. We have things that we're not certain about, but one thing Monique and I both know, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. And if you are wondering what that means for you, um, we want to encourage you to read the scriptures, talk to the Lord, and engage with us, and let us know that you're out there. Thank you so much for watching. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye.